Well, last week we finished out the book of First Thessalonians, and one week later we're into Second Thessalonians. And maybe that's fitting because Paul wrote this second letter to the Thessalonian church from the city of Corinth not long after his first letter to them, possibly only a few months later. Um, he devotes much of the letter to the return of Christ the importance of living faithfully until that day comes. But besides the persecution that the church had been facing from the beginning, it appears that some false teaching had wormed its way in among them and was having its harmful effect, as all false teaching does. In addition, some of the believers were evidently so eager about the coming of the Lord that they had quit working. And with extra time on their hands, they had started meddling in the lives of other believers, and as well as living like parasites on the labors of others since they weren't providing their own. So, Paul starts the letter in his usual manner, but in doing so, he's going to reveal to us why he's so confident that his readers are truly born again. And what he'll describe well summarizes what authentic Christianity looks like in the lives of a healthy local church family, whether you're living in the first century or in the 21st century. So will you follow with me as I read this morning from 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, that would be Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring." So, with this opening to his letter, we see this brief uh, portrayal of authentic Christianity. It's first characterized in verses 1 and 2 by blessings from God. The kind of things that we see among genuine Christians happening in their lives, the transformation is rooted in blessings that actually come from God, else it wouldn't happen at all. And then it makes sense then, verse 3 that Paul would be thankful to God, particularly for the effects that he's seeing in their lives. And then finally, in verse 4, he talks about testimony for God, a church that bears the marks of God at work in them, transforming them, is a church that gives witness to the power of the gospel and is therefore effective at encouraging others as well. So, first consider with me blessings from God. These are blessings that God had poured out on this church in Thessalonica. They're blessings that He has poured out on our church here. They are common to those that are truly Christian. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, if you compared this with 1 Thessalonians, you would find that the way Paul opens this letter is nearly identical to the first letter that he wrote to them. The only difference is that he adds that grace and peace are from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He reiterates that they're the source of all these blessings. The church is a called-out assembly of the people of God. But the way that Paul describes their identity is that they are the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they have a vital connection to God the Father and God the Son. They have entered into the life of God Himself. I think this is really important for us to understand about a a genuine church made up of genuine Christians that are truly born again, is that it's not just about service orders, it's not just about service times, it's not just some religious organization that we've joined, but, but ultimately it's about this living connection with the God of heaven and with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in this family of God. God is our heavenly Father, and as any good father does, he exercises loving watch care over us. His spiritual DNA is at work in us, transforming us from the inside out to be like him. And so wherever you find true Christianity, you will find people whose whose real character and whose expressive behavior reflects the character of God and reflects the deeds of God. They're in, the, in God the Father, and they're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the significance of that uh, terminology. You know, Lord and Jesus and Christ is almost like first, second, and, you know, third, like somebody's first, middle, and, and last names to us. We get so used to saying it that way. But think about the significance of saying that He is Lord, and that He is Jesus, and that He is Christ. He's the Savior King who rules over an everlasting kingdom, who came into our world to give his life as a ransom for many. He's come to rescue us from our sin. We are citizens of his kingdom. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And Jesus taught his disciples that anyone abiding in him would bear much fruit, that without him we can do nothing. And true believers are in him and he is in true believers. And that's what makes us productive in ways that only God can produce in us. You know, there's so much pedestrian and mundane about our lives. And even as we look across and look down the pew and we look at the people that we know, we can can think of all the ups and downs of their lives. We know their strengths and weaknesses. I mean, they're just ordinary folk. But remember that in this group of ordinary folk, God is doing extraordinary things, that His life is in us. This is what binds us together. This is really ultimately why we would gather as we do this morning. This is what gives us our mission in life. For any Christian to thrive in a hostile world of persecution, of false teaching, and of off-course living, we, we have to be clear that we are actually in him. And it's that chief identity that defines who we really are and that flows out into what we desire and think and say and do. Don't let your chief identity be whatever your 
you know, the way that you make a living. Don't let that be your chief identity. Don't let your chief identity just be the family that you're part of or, or your chief identity just be where you live in the country. Don't let your chief identity be the sins that you battle with or with the struggles that you face. Let your chief identity be that you are in God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those whose identity is in the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ experience grace and peace. Grace, you know, is favor. It's this goodness. It's beauty that we've not earned, nor could we ever do so. It is too lavish for that. It's a loving gift from God. It's more than we could ever hope for on our own, and this is the sphere in which we live. We're living within the sphere of grace, and Paul is praying this blessing on this group of believers. Grace and peace, and we commonly see these in the apostles' letters to believers. Peace speaks of the restoration we have into fellowship with God, that that fellowship we lost in the Garden of Eden. And God has reestablished peace through Jesus Christ. He has paid the penalty of our sin, he's broken the barrier, and he has reconciled us to himself. When we were by birth and by choice rebels against him and enemies against him, but now we're aligned with our creator, and and now we're in tune with the universe that he designed and that he governs. You know, peace, shalom, is more than just absence of conflict. It's also that things are right. They're, they're as they should be. Everything's in its place, and, and life is good. This peace is in God. His life in us makes healthy relationships with other people possible, and even normal for us to have healthy relationships with other people especially those of the household of faith. So this peace of God reigning in our hearts creates a peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the apostles consistently teach this. He gives us a peace that passes understanding, that calms our fretful hearts, that gives us self-controlled and settled assurance because we are assured that God is actually for us and not against us. We belong to him, and we, we have this grace and peace. It's just, it's, it's part of just what every Christian has given when he comes to know Jesus as his Savior. These are blessings from God and his gifts uh, to his people. God himself is the fountain of all that's good that flows into our lives and, and equips us for battle against Satan the world and the flesh. So, the, the Thessalonian believers could look at their circumstances. They could, they could fret. They could scheme. They could worry about all the persecution that they're facing. Um, it's not that they don't feel the pressure. It's not that they don't, they don't sorrow over the afflictions, but it's that in all of that affliction, they still had a foundation, a, a bedrock, an anchor for them knowing that they actually belong to God. You know, when you're going through really difficult times, they're far more difficult to go through when you feel like you're all alone. But, but when 
you know, sometimes it's other human beings that are with you in it, you know, as best as other human beings can understand. But, but to know that not only human beings are, are with you, but that God is with you, to have a great sense of that makes all the difference in the world. And that's essentially what Paul is saying to these believers. So let me ask you these questions. In what ways can you remind yourself every day that your chief identity is one who is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? We wear a lot of hats, you know, husband, wife, mom, dad, employer, employee, there's a lot of things we have to tend to, but what, what if you were to keep in mind that your chief identity is that you are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ? And what are ways that you can keep in the forefront of your mind that you have freely received the infinite blessing of God's grace, that He has favored you, that He has given rich gifts to you, and that that displays His heart toward you? And then in what ways does the relationship of peace you enjoy with God flow out to your relationships with others? Perhaps as you think about that, you can think about people that you're at odds with and they're brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, what's going on there? What, what needs to happen to make those relationships reflect the relationship you have with God. You know, one thing you, you start to notice is that when your heart is out of sync with God, maybe there's some sin in your life, or maybe you're, you're angry with Him because He's not doing what you expect Him to do, it's way harder to get along with other people. And in fact, you can see this in the countenance of people. Like if you're a teacher and you look across the classroom and your students, you can tell when they're having a bad day. You can tell sometimes when they're not right with God. You don't know exactly what's going on there, but you know that the grumpy look on their face didn't come from the Spirit of God. And, and when they can get that resolved, it's, it's like the sky clears, and they're able to actually have a relationship with other people. We tend to blame other people for, for the, the monkey wrenches that happen in our relationships. So often, you know, we just need to look in the mirror and say, Hey, dude, what's going on with your own heart that you can't get along with these other people in the way that, that God has gotten along with you, that God has restored you to fellowship? So grace and peace because we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are blessings for all true believers in the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 3, we see Paul's thankfulness to God. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So we were talking about this in our staff meeting um, this past Thursday. We, we talk about the messages that are coming up. You know, one of the comments was, you know, if, if we could just say this about Hampton Park, you say, what's going on at Hampton Park? If we could say, well, people's faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of them is increasing, that would be amazing. That would be like, that's the goal. You know, it seems simple in some ways, but think about it. If these things are actually going on in the life of a church body, these are really good things. These are things to give God thanks for. So these two major reasons for praising God for what's happening in the lives of these brothers and sisters is first, a growing faith. 
Your faith is growing abundantly like some luxuriant plant in a well-watered garden. Their, their reliance on God is not drying up and blowing away under the firestorm of persecution and affliction. It's still alive. It's holding firm. It's deeply rooted in God's faithfulness. It's, it's strengthening. It's growing with the life of God in them. It's spreading out like a fruitful vine in all kinds of practical ways. It reminds us of the description in Psalm 1 of the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and he's like a tree by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in the season and, and doesn't wither in times of drought. This growing faith is evident in their lives. And then increasing love. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And the fact is, wherever genuine faith is strong, genuine love will also increase. Because it is the fruit of God's life in us. And notice that he says, every one of you bears this characteristic. No exceptions. And, and wherever you see this kind of love flowing freely among a community of believers, you are witnessing the mighty work of the God of love. And we saw this emphasized over and over again in the letter of 1 John. Well, for this reason, we give God great praise whenever we see love increasing among His people. It is the hallmark of authentic Christianity, as well it should be. For both Christ and the apostles say, if you want to sum up all the requirements of the law and the prophets, it is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, all those other commands are really just fleshing out what love looks like, okay? So if there's not love, it, it all becomes a, a bunch of, of do-good works righteousness, but, but the love is something that comes actually from God and is productive in our lives of the right kinds of words and deeds. This is for one another. It's a love for one another. It's mutual. It's, it's flowing from every believer to every other believer and, and from every other believer. What love does, the love that we have from God, weaves our hearts together and binds us close in the unity that the Spirit of God produces among true brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, this, this love is not just a feel-goodism. It's really practical, down-to-earth, caring about one another to the point of being willing to sacrifice yourself. The pressures of life and the mistreatments that we experience from those outside of Christ can, can undermine and poison our relationships with our brothers and sisters. You know, when we are hurting, we're most likely to express anger. If you, don't, if you don't hurt me, then I probably can keep my cool. But as soon as you draw blood, then, then I'm really ready to, to duck you, right? Um, it's when we're hurt that it's hard to respond the right way. And sometimes the hurt hasn't come from the person you're interacting with. It's come from somewhere else. But you're hurting, and so you're really sensitive, um, you know, kind of prickles and stings, and, and it's hard to get along. The faults and failings common to human beings can rub us wrong and make us cynical and bitter toward others. Well, that kind of response is not from the Spirit of God. It's from our own sinful flesh, and we all can, can be that way. The fact is that we need one another. 
Others in our body need our self-sacrificing love, and we need theirs. We can't thrive in a hostile world as lone rangers. I mean, there's a place. You need time alone with God. There's a place for you to be alone with God. But, but for you to try to live the Christian life alone isn't the Christian life. That's not the way the scriptures have described it. We dare not let the evil one cut us off from the love and help we need from our brothers and sisters. Nor can we let anything that happens to us in life turn us to kind of selfish isolation. We need their love and they need our love too. And will you notice further that Paul doesn't just say that he and Silas and Timothy are thankful for the Thessalonian believers. He says we ought always to give thanks. It's a debt owed. It's something God has earned from us. And then he adds, as is right, as is fitting or appropriate for us to do. In other words, not giving thanks to God for his transforming work in the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ robs God of the praises due him and is entirely unfitting to what's happening in their lives. It's like you're blind to what God is doing and you're robbing him from the praise he deserves. So when you and I see growing faith and increasing love in the lives of other believers, we ought to be thanking God for what we see in them. By the way, it shows that you noticed, right? You're paying attention to what's going on in their lives. It's fitting for us to give God thanks, and it's not fitting to ignore what he is doing. You know, sometimes professing Christians Preachers included, and maybe preachers particularly, seem to get this backwards. They're always nitpicking about what other believers are doing wrong while they completely ignore all the evidence of the mighty work of God in them. Well, that kind of Christianity is diseased. It detracts from God's glory. It, it harms and discourages brothers and sisters that need our love and encouragement. And it gives ammunition to the enemies of God to mock the people of God. It's not that sin in another believer's life should not, never be confronted, but we're commanded to do so with, with genuine affection that desires restoration to health. There's a protocol to it that's appropriate and that shows that we care for them. No relationship works well if all you ever do is highlight the faults of other people while dismissing all their good qualities. Try parenting that way, right? Isn't it? I mean, you know, we're, we want to be conscientious parents. And so, hey, everything's going great, but we don't want to let anything slip. So, oh, that was wrong. Oh, that was wrong. That was wrong. Well, eventually, your kids are so discouraged. It's like, you know, mom, dad, I can't ever do anything right. Your, your criticisms, your corrections have to be couched within a whole lot of affirmation and encouragement of what they're doing that's right. You need to show that you're not blind to the things that are right, because you're always harping on the things that are wrong. And, you know, think about, you know, at what level those things actually are, whether, whether they need to be dealt with right now, you know, because they could turn that all around on you, you know, because I haven't met a parent yet that did everything right. And you want to display, you want to display the kind of humility that knows, hey, we're, we're all you realize every one of us, this is our first go-round at living life? 
you know, we're not Hindus, you know, we don't think that we've been reincarnated. And I don't know if you can remember what happened in the former life anyway, even if you were. Uh, you know, this is our first go-round. This is our first, you know, even if you, you say, well, I've got multiple kids. Well, yeah, but you've learned that they're all different. Like, it's like, wait a minute. Are you sure I didn't, are you sure you're our kid? Because I don't even understand where you're coming from, right? So we're, we're all first time working through life. So some humility and, and really noticing the good things that are ha that's happening in other people's lives. And this, this is happening not just within families. This is happening within a church family. You're, you're looking for these things that God is doing. We don't want to really be like the accuser of the brethren, the devil, whose name means slanderer. We're, we're always talking about people's faults. So where do you see growing faith in the lives of your brothers and sisters? You know, even this year, you've, you've had opportunities to see growing faith uh, in the lives of people that you know in this church body and outside of this church body. And where do you see increasing love in their lives? And how can you make it a habit to give thanks to God for these supernatural blessings that you're seeing in them? And by the way, if you are seeing these things happening in their lives, you're seeing this work of God and you're talking to God about it, you're, you're thanking God, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in Susie's life. Thank you for what you're doing in Jim's life. If, if you're doing that, you know what? It's way easier for you than to bring that up to Susie or Jim as you're talking with them and to encourage them in the faith, just as he's bringing this up with these believers. Third thing that we see here is a testimony for God in verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. He's boasting about them in the churches of God. Of course, Paul had connection with a lot of local churches, and he's encouraging other churches with what he's seeing happening among the believers in Thessalonica. When we see other believers thriving in a hostile world, we have reason not only to give thanks to God, but also to share with others what God is doing. Think about all this going on here. Paul looks and, and sees God at work in them, so he's thanking God for it, and, then he, and he also is telling them, he's affirming them, I'm seeing this in your life, and then he's going a step beyond that. Hey, did you hear what's happening with the believers in Thessalonica? Look at what God is doing. It's an encouragement to the faith of other believers to know that God is at work in all kinds of places on earth. It strengthens our confidence in the power of the gospel to save people to the uttermost. So we talked about this verse in our staff meeting this week. The men mentioned it reminded them of the kind of missionary reports that we get from people like J.D. Crowley and the rest of the team in Cambodia. Or if you think about it, the reason we love dispatches from the front and the, the various films that were produced uh, by Frontline is that we get to rejoice at the progress of the gospel in some of the hardest places on earth. It's like we, we get a bird's eye view. This is what God is doing. This is kingdom advance. And last year, the Operation Go movie featured believers in Mongolia. And that stirred our hearts in a similar way. There's, there's profit in, in seeing what God is doing in the lives of other believers in other places and reminding ourselves that God is at work. It's really important 
for us not only to thank God for gospel advance and spiritual growth in the lives of believers in a particular place, but also to share their progress with believers elsewhere so they can rejoice with us in what God is doing. I mean, sometimes I, I hear people like, you know, you know wringing their hands like oh, the times are so dark and, and, you know, churches are going by the way and, and you know, it's just so terrible. And, and, and I want to say to them, yes, but... Did you hear about what God is doing here and there and, and, and listen to what he's doing at Hampton Park or, or other churches that we know about and to encourage them that God hasn't quit doing his work among his people. When, when we do this, God gets the honor he deserves and, and we create a ripple effect of encouragement. We're, we're getting more mileage out of it. It's the reason that, that the... the that the accounts, the historical accounts in Scripture are there. It's not only to warn us, but it's to encourage us. Like, look, this is the way God works among people. And the same God is doing the same kind of work today. Whatever God is doing in your life, in the lives of your brothers and sisters, is not just for the benefit of our own local church. It is for the benefit of people everywhere. And, and it's not, you know... It's not like bragging about us. And so this is what makes it particularly uh, effective. You're talking about another church. You're talking about other people, but you're, you're bragging about God and what he's doing. You know, some ministries and fellowships focus much of their energy on pointing out what's wrong with other ministries and churches. Even those that are actually devoted to Christ and his word, and despite the fruitfulness from God's supernatural work among them, Consider how much more beneficial it would be to spend our time praising God for what he's doing in those ministries and sharing with others the good news of that work. That's one reason, by the way, that we pray for other churches in our Greenville area that are devoted to Christ and his gospel, including those whose culture and history may be very different from our own. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and we want to highlight that. We want to be praying for God's mighty work among them and to be thanking God when we see that work among them and sharing it with others. We're not on the planet to further our own reputation and glory. We're on the planet to further God's. And when we praise Him for what He's doing elsewhere and share the good news, we are striving to make much of Him and not of ourselves. So, what reason does Paul give for why he boasts to these other churches? Notice he characterizes it as steadfastness and faith. Steadfastness is that endurance, bearing up under, remaining under the load, even though it's heavy. And then faith, we know, is that ongoing reliance on God, continuing to lean the full weight of their trust on Christ to sustain them and bear them through no matter how hard life might be. And, and what makes this remarkable, this steadfastness, this endurance, uh, is the load. What makes the faith remarkable is the things that would fight against their faith. He says, in all your persecutions, and that, that speaks of the, the hatred and the mistreatment they're getting from the enemies of the gospel, those that are pursuing them, hunting them down, those that hate God and hate His people. And then also this steadfastness in faith is in the face of afflictions. 
the pressures, the, the tribulations, those that are common to life, as well as those created by the persecution. I mean, if people confiscate your, your house and your goods, there's going to be pressure and affliction. How are you going to make ends meet? How are you going to eat? Where are you going to live? Um, and so there's a combination of both the persecution and the afflictions. But, but even where there's no persecution that's as severe as what they were facing, there's afflictions. I mean, every day just about is, has some kind of affliction, some kind of pressure that you have to bear up under and their faith was holding firm. You are enduring. You're, you're holding yourself up under that. We see this played out for us often in our own local body. We weep with those who weep. I mean, one of the hard things about a, a larger church like ours, particularly as we get to know one another, is we have to say goodbye to so many of our brothers and sisters. It's, it's hard to watch that. And if you've been here for a while, there's, there's all kinds of empty seats where dear brothers and sisters used to be. And it, it's hard to go through that. We try to meet the needs that are precipitated by deep trials and sorrows and sufferings. Um, it, it's such a blessing to hear about the, the cards and the texts and the meals and the financial gifts and, and, the, and the prayers and, then the, and, and see words of uh, words of kindness and the hugs that, that go around. And yet, how often it is that when we get in close with our brothers and sisters navigating deep troubles, we are treated to a front row seat on how God is sustaining them and blessing them in the middle of the storm. And, and we go away praising God. This often happens with those that do hospital visitation. We go away praising God, boasting in God's goodness, amazed at the resilience that he so often chooses to give to our suffering brothers and sisters. And that's what's happening here. Paul is joyful, not that his beloved brothers and sisters face trouble and suffering. He's joyful that they're thriving in their faith in the face of it all. Okay? So, so be careful, you know, when, when somebody's going through deep trials, you know, be careful about saying super pious stuff like, oh, well, this will be just such a wonderful time for God to work. Yeah, easy for you to say. That's probably not the first thing that ought to come out of your mind. Or, you know, all things work together for good, brother. Okay, he knows the verse too. Try, try some tears first. Try some hugs first. Try some paying attention to what needs have been precipitated by the trial. And then, as you're close to these people and you see God at work, then give them the encouragement of, of you've been such a blessing to me, seeing how God has encouraged you. And, and I've had enough of these experiences where it's clearly, it's not the person that's so amazing that they could weather this. It's, it's that you see God give them special things. I mean, visitations from God in a, in a hospital room, times when he just gives them an inexplicable joy in what they're going through. And to get to hear about this is extraordinary. Uh, and, and when we see this indomitable faith, this steadfastness, it, it unveils God to be doing a work in them. It, 
it's not a natural thing. It's a supernatural thing, and it, it causes us uh, to have joy. Paul is boasting in the cross of Christ, as he puts it in Galatians 6. God turned an instrument of excruciating suffering designed for criminals into an emblem of love for humanity in his way of ransoming sinners from their sin, from their death, and from the wrath that they deserve. And in the same way, God has a way of turning the persecutions and the afflictions of believers, whether they're in Thessalonica or in Greenville, South Carolina, into a megaphone to shout out to all the world the amazing power of the gospel in the lives of those who are trusting Jesus and, and follow him no matter what the cost is. I mean, one of the ways we know that what we have is valuable is what we're willing to pay for it, what we're willing to suffer for it. And God gives us that kind of opportunity. You know, we've kind of, we've lived in America in a, in a kind of a bubble of time where hostility against God, you know, it comes and, and fits and starts. It's largely um, in the what people say about other people. We haven't really been tested deeply with the level of persecution like the Thessalonians were facing. And there's no guarantee, when you look at our very divided culture, there's no guarantee how long that's actually going to last. But, but whenever those times come, we, we want to remember that that those persecutions don't thwart the hand of God. And, and in fact, the, the times of darkness tend to cause His glory to shine out all the more in His people. Don't be afraid of those, those times. Um, don't, you know, don't, we don't want to wish, we don't wish suffering on ourselves. That's weird, okay? Um, but when the suffering comes in the will of God, though we're grieved by various trials, we, we know that God can use us to shine out His excellency. So, who do you know right now? I want you to try to think of some names. Who do you know is proving steadfast in their faith despite great suffering? You know, maybe you need to start with who in our, who in our congregation, who, what believers do you know are suffering and, and who among them do you see proving steadfast in their faith? And, and how can you boast more often in what God is doing in the lives of other believers and of other churches? And who among the believers you know is aware that you praise God for what He's doing in their lives? Because that's encouraging in and of itself. And that's the encouragement that Paul writes to these believers what Paul describes in these opening verses is, is not unique, it's normative. In other words, this, this is normal Christianity that's healthy. It's what authentic Christianity is supposed to look like in every time and place. It's a display of the power of God and the power of the gospel to save to the uttermost those who trust in Christ Jesus. So the question is, could Paul write the same things about you in our church family. And I think by the grace of God, I think he could. I think we see this happening, and we pray that it will happen more and more. Blessings from God, thankful to God, and testimony for God. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your kindness to us. We, we thank you, God, for how you have used the experience of the Thessalonian believers and your faithfulness to them and, and the power that you displayed in them. You're still using that to this day to encourage other believers in the faith. And this morning, you've encouraged us. So, God, I pray that as we tackle the, the challenges of life, the afflictions, and even the mistreatments, um, Lord, I pray that, that, that we, would, we would be sure to be living out just normal Christianity, the, the real thing, the authentic Christianity, so that there is a testimony of praise to you so that there's an encouragement to other believers, and so that there is a winsomeness and attractiveness to those who aren't trusting in Jesus yet to enter into this relationship of blessing, this grace and peace that comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.